Okay, we're going to start on a new um, sutra. Does anyone have any questions or thoughts left over from anything else? We missed you last week, Tom. <laughs> we didn't have any questions to start last week. Really? Yeah, it was a whole new, whole new experience. <laughs> I wonder if you could talk about everyday life. We come to classes, we come to Sunday services, we go to Spiritual Renewal Week, we, f- we, we get real, genuine inspiration and thrilled to the core of our being sometimes. And then it's Monday morning and you got to get up and you got to put one foot in front of the other and you got to do what you got to do. And uh, I'm reminded of a saying that the Peace Pilgrim says in her book quite a bit. She said, it took a little while for the living to catch up to the believing. <laughs> and so I'm certain Patanjali's got something to say about that. Well, he has that. nothing but something to say about that. But you actually, Tom, it's... Um, it's, that's not a real question you just asked. It's kind of a trick question, in a sense, because you get inspired, you fall from inspiration, you seek more inspiration, you get inspired, you fall from inspiration, you seek more inspiration. You know, every single thing that Patanjali has in here is about, you know, right attitude. We haven't, you know, we haven't gotten to right practices and so on, but it's all about right attitude and how you think. And it's just, in this moment, what am I doing with my consciousness? And uh, um, there is no secret that hasn't been told to you. You know, there's sort of a, th- yeah, there's just, there is no secret. What you just described is the way it is. And there's a thought somewhere in your mind that, that somebody's holding back on you. But they're not. I was actually contemplating just this morning, um, I was contemplating the word freedom. Sort of what makes a person feel free or not free? There's a kind of grace that you ride, and you ride it. I, I remember somebody was comparing themselves, talking to Swamiji, and one devotee was feeling, lamenting, and was comparing herself to another devotee. Swamiji just looked at her and said, oh, it's going to be many incarnations before you was, you're as free as that person is. It was just a... I mean, it was, it was a startling statement when it was reported to me because the person to whom he spoke it reported it to me. But he was just looking at her and saying, it's not you. You're not going to be that way. You have a hard road to hoe, and that's what you're going to have to do. Don't look at that one. She, you know, they've already walked it. You haven't. And it was just like that. But... Uh, So if you get up on Monday morning and you've lost all the inspiration you have, that's the definition of your life. And uh, the more uh, readily you relax into it and not keep imagining that, that there's some other route than the hard, slogging, boring, uh, depressing struggle to get freer, you're in the revolt a little bit. 
Other people are in the revolt. That's why I love that bird story. You know, this is just what is. And I can rebel against it and go around over here thinking there's another answer. But by this point on your spiritual life, you keep coming back to the spot. Pretty much the answer to that is, wow, this is who I am. And if I don't like it, I've got to just put in place what I already know. Fair enough. Marilyn behind you is waving her hand. I discovered something yesterday that might help. <laughs> and I'm, I'm going to try, I'm going to work on. I've been noticing that when, when I meditate or when I sit very still and, and try and center myself, that I, I feel really good. And um, so, but then it's, you know, it's like you can't walk and chew gum at the same time. Mm-hmm. So anytime I get into motion, I, I lose that centered feeling but anyway yesterday I was being super efficient and I got a lot done I was feeling really happy most of the time except when you know little things would go wrong with the computer or the copy machine but then at the end of the day I felt this letdown and I thought you know I never stopped to try and get centered again Mm -hmm. I never I never and I thought I need to slow down I need even if it's every five minutes I need to stop and feel that centered place, and that I'm everything I'm doing is coming from there. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm going to try and work on now. Is just you know, not because I think it was my ego that was being efficient. Mm-hmm. I guess I mean, well, my mother was doing it, but but I I think I got to the point where I was just thinking I was doing it, and then I felt that letdown. And you, you know, but what you're describing, what Tom's describing, is the spiritual path. Yeah, it's just you're centered. You're not. You're uplifted. You're not. It's easy. It's not, and that's why it takes so many lifetimes. But the more you can just keep reminding yourself to stay centered, the better off you'll be. Yeah. So that's what I'm going to try doing. But but you can't you can't to speak to Tom now, not to speak to you, Marilyn. But you can't imagine that there's any other route, and you can't be annoyed. You have asked me this question approximately a thousand times in different forms. I I know, I get it. (laughs) Yeah, and I keep looking for it for you, but haven't found it. But you see, there's nothing wrong with where you are either. I, w- I, I have been trying to edit for weeks this... I've been working on this book, which is the letters that I wrote over the last couple of years. I've been editing them into a book. I'm bored with saying that I'm editing them. You must be really bored with hearing them. For heaven's sakes, honey, why don't you finish the darn thing? Well, that's how I feel too. But anyway, <laughs> this one question was just... It just never was coming out right. And I finally realized that I wasn't answering the question properly. And the question was... I keep making the same mistakes over and over again. Despite my best resolutions, I can't seem to keep my resolutions. I keep falling back. finally occurred to me, both because I was thinking about the person I knew who wrote the letter. He's trying to work out somebody else's karma. He gets up in the morning and he makes a resolution to do something that is not his own next step. And then he fails at it. Then he gets up the next morning and makes the same resolution. And then he fails at it. If you're sincere and you can't live up to the resolutions you keep making, it's because you're making the wrong resolutions. 
And those resolutions are usually karma that looks easier than yours, <laughs> or karma that looks more better than mine. You know, my actual problem is that I only meditate 30 minutes a day. If I just meditated two hours every morning, tomorrow I will meditate for two hours. And Oh, I failed again. But you succeeded perfectly in meditating 35 minutes, which is actually what your own next step is. It just isn't two hours. Because it was confusing me. Why would a sincere person fail continuously? Ah, because they're, they're trying to jump from here to there without all the effort required to go. Somebody else's karma. That's why Swami said to that woman, oh, you'll do incarnations before you're as free as that person is. It seemed like such a brutal thing to say. But I really understand why. Because that woman's energy was all involved in jealousy and longing. And she just wasn't doing the business at hand. And if she just did the business at hand, you know, it'd be a whole lot uh, better. Fair enough? Yes. Yeah, and it's just the hard thing is, the really hardest thing on the spiritual path is, uh, wow, this really is what I have to work on. You know? This really is genuinely my actual next step. You've heard me tell that story about Swamiji, you know, talking about how to be a, a householder, basically how to be a lay member. And he, his whole instruction about how to be a lay member was how to be a world-renouncing renunciate. And when I said, sir, you should talk to them about how to be lay members, he said, I am. I'm, I'm telling them what it looks like to be a complete renunciate, so don't even try it. That was his words. Don't even try to live the way I do, he said. You could never do it. He said, just do what's appropriate for you. But that's a really hard thing to get because we want to... But that's just ego. I mean, that's, this is much worse ego than just getting up in the morning and thinking, I'll just watch a movie before I get out of bed. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just getting up in the morning and watching a movie before you get out of bed. That's all it is. But trying always to be something you're not is just a complete and total confusion of the fundamental... You can't make any decisions properly then. You just make one dumb decision after another because you're making decisions for somebody else <laughs> and they don't work. It's, uh, that's among other reasons, and I have, I have my own reasons for this, but that's why I never think about being liberated in this lifetime because for me that's just really not a good plan. It's a much better plan for me to think we're doing fine you know, we're making steady progress and whatever it's going to be is going to be because I, I just don't, I don't want to get outside myself because I, you know, I, I don't want to make resolutions I'll fail at because they're the wrong ones. I'd rather, you know, be surprised. Whoa, look at that. You know, less karma left than I thought. Just easier. Yeah, it's okay. We're, we're, good, we're good stuff. We got really good karma. We're a heck of a lot farther down this road than a lot of folks on the planet. And I don't mean that with pride. I just mean that like, whew, you know. And we're much more likely to continue to progress if we're just comfortable than if we set up all these complexes because then you've got all this boing-back energy going all the time. Because you, you, if you make the wrong resolutions, continually fail at them, then you begin to think of yourself as a spiritual failure. When you're not a spiritual failure at all, you're just not that person. You're this person. And it's also, it's a way of avoiding the real work. I'll make big resolutions and fail at them, and then I can 
be really depressed, and then I can watch two movies before I get up in the morning because I'm so depressed. <laughs> it is how it works. It doesn't work. You know, that's how it works to not work. Been there, done that. Know that story really well. <laughs> not going back. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I hope it helps. Any other questions or thoughts before we go on? Sarah. Well, I guess it's uh, just more of the same thing as I really agree with what you're saying. And uh, just, um, wow, I think it's, what am I going to say? Give oneself a try, without trying to be egoic, give oneself a little credit. Hey, I did that. Mm it's it's uh, it's so much easier. Humility is self honesty. Yeah, oh, I like look at that. me. I found the spiritual path. I recognized a God realized master. I took kriya initiation. I practiced kriya. Yeah, I love God. I energize. I live in a spiritual community. I have spiritual friends. You know, I don't go out carousing on the weekends. I'm faithful to my wife. I don't drink anymore. You know, I mean, make long lists. Yeah. Lists are really, really long. I'm honorable in my work. You know, and so there's a few edges over here. I mean, that's all right. Yeah. I mean, you can do better than that, but everybody has the way that they have to work with themselves. Everybody, that's why I say I have my own reasons for what I do, but it's not saying, I'm not really saying it's the only way. It's just I have reasons for doing it because it works for me. Okay, any other thoughts or questions? I can't tell you how many times and how many classes and how many ways we go over and over and over and over that point. And there's also what Master said, what Swami said, that most people left Master because he shone too much light on their own karmic state and they couldn't bear to see themselves that clearly, so they ran away from his light. That's a, you know, in other words, the, the inability to see yourself honesty, honestly caused them not to be able to stay when they had the karma to be with Master when he was there. They couldn't stay because they didn't have the self-honesty. It seems to me, therefore, it's a really important quality to cultivate is just comfort with your own reality so that when the light comes closer and that reality is exposed, you're comfortable in it. And that's why all this over and over, God loves you just the way you are, God loves you just the way you are, you, you see, it's, it's very, um, I'm, I'm teasing you a little because we're old friends, but this is not a small thing. This is just gigantic. And the more completely comfortable you can get in it, the stronger you'll be for the long haul. You know, we want, we want, attitudes, we want attitudes that make the wheels run well. We don't want attitudes that cause the wheels to co- constantly go like that, even though it looks like it's a better way. You know, what vow are you going to take? I'm going to take the Naya Swami vow. Why would you take that vow? Because it's the top vow. <laughs> it was an actual conversation. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, we're not talking about padding your SAT score so you can get into Harvard, you know. <laughs> this is between you and God. There's no faking this. <laughs> Think of little, um, was it Ramu? The postman 
who, who, who he was, was it Lahiri was being pestered by someone who wanted the higher Kriyas, and the little postman was asking Lahiri's grace to help him deliver his letters. Please, no more initiation, sir. He said, I have so much bliss from the one you've given me. Then Lahiri says to the other devotee, this is what a devotee really is. You know, don't think about these externals. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we had his birthday yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> and his Mahasamadhi four days earlier. He was liberated before he was born. That's how I always remember. <laughs> okay, are we ready? Someday, in some perfect universe, we'll have a Kriya week every year this time. This is the time of year, you see, when we ought to have our Kriya Yoga week. When we have a world where everything supports our spiritual life, and we don't have any other conflicting... You know, every year when the mail is delivered on January 5th, I'm surprised. (laughs) Isn't this, you know, aren't the banks closed today? How can we do regular business? (laughs) But so far they still are open, so... But eventually they won't be few years, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, sutra. I couldn't remember the word. Sutra. I keep wanting to say stupa, but that's definitely not the word. Sutra. Sutra. Yeah, I know. When we were in uh, Thailand, for some reason or another, we kept pronouncing Thai words with a Vietnamese accent, which, or we, pron- we, 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 we pronounced Thai words so they sounded Vietnamese. No, and the, our Vietnam, our Thai host just thought it was the funniest thing they'd ever heard. How could you possibly make such a mistake? And everybody lives in their own world. Viet, Vietnamese, Thai, I mean, how could I possibly tell the difference? When you're inside of something, it's all perfectly clear to you. When you're outside of it, it's a total mystery. Language is just one thing. So stupa and sutra were just like all scrambled up in my head. By cultivating attitudes of friendliness, this is an amazing sutra actually, By cultivating attitudes of friendliness toward those who are happy, compassion for the unhappy, delight in the virtuous, and disregard for the wicked, the vrittis, the vortices of attachment and desire, remain in undisturbed calmness. Okay. You you know, one of the things I love, both about the way Swami translated this and the way Patanjali wrote it in the first place, is that whereas Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, primarily because seemingly of the terrible translations and the worst, worst interpretations that have characterized the study of this subject for so long, we were startled by words like friendliness. We just don't associate words like friendliness with Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. Somehow it's supposed to be more austere and more difficult than that. But the statement he makes here, which is basically how to keep ourselves in a state of even-mindedness and cheerfulness, this particular set of advice is really astonishing. Friendliness toward those who are happy, compassion for the unhappy. And as he talks about this, which is just a little bit of a distance, delight in those who are virtuous, and then disregard of the wicked. He's really defining exactly the way to conduct your human relationships, who to associate with, who not to associate with, and what attitude to have when circumstances bring you to places you may not want to be. One of the qualities that I remember, you know, it's not like it was so long ago that I've to strain my memory, that always made such a deep impression on me about Swami Kriyananda was actually his friendliness. And it was like, 
if you had asked me what was it like to be with Swamiji, what was he, what would he like, what was he like, it wouldn't have occurred to me. So he was very friendly. You know, it sounds a little insufficient, you know, to describe such a person. But the fact of the was, he was very, very friendly. And he was especially friendly to people whose vibrations uh, attracted him. In other words, as the way he describes it in here, um, he talked about, um, you know, the, the people who are friendly. Exactly where does he put it? Um, well, he says it, you know, to those who are happy because it's easier to give energy when there's positive energy coming back. And he's also talking here about being, this is just exactly what we were talking about, realistic about our own capabilities. He describes in here, uh, Swamiji describes in here, how consciousness has magnetism, and magnetism has an effect on us. And just because we think we're capable of dealing with everybody's influence, if their magnetism is stronger than ours, their magnetism will convert ours. And if their magnetism is wicked or dark or unhappy... We, don't, we won't necessarily be able to hold our positive attitude in the face of that. And this is where Patanjali says, if you behave this way, your vrittis will remain calm. They will not be disturbed by your relationships with people. This is also advice, um, a little bit what Marilyn was talking about, about how to hold ourselves centered, but nonetheless carry on in the relationships that we have to have with people. And Swamiji's extreme friendliness was much more than um, somebody running for political office. You know, you see these people when Bill Clinton was our president, he was such a character and a half, you know, in his, the way he would go out there. And I was just remembering recently a few, I don't know, it was quite a number of years ago, I believe it was while he was still president when he went to India, and how just phenomenally popular he was and what an amazing quality that man had on a certain level of friendliness, but just putting himself out there. But it was all very, um, very much, he, I think he has, I think he was the a, a genuine lover of people. But also, of course, there was a lot of personal motive and egoic intention behind what he did. But still, he could generate a lot of magnetism. Swami's friendliness was a friendliness completely without motive. It was, as he describes it himself, it was just this, this kindly attitude that he would have. And whenever you see somebody who's receptive to that kindness, then there's, it's even easier. You're not having to break down their barriers. Their energy automatically draws you in. I had a very interesting conversation with this woman who lived at Ananda but had a, a very ambivalent attitude towards Swamiji. She was always very suspicious of him. And she, she had a lot of criticism in her mind of him all the time. And she, a lot of times people would tell me stories or come to me to try to resolve confusions they had because of interactions they had with Swami that were often imaginary, that they would just become extremely self-concerned and these imaginary thoughts would come to them. So this woman told this story, and at first I had the inclination that it was imaginary, but then I really decided it probably wasn't. She, uh, Swami, this was quite a few years ago, and Swamiji had been away, and he away for some months, and he'd come back to the community, and they were having an open house at the Crystal Hermitage Garden, and she was there, and he came into the room, and even as he walked in, she started thinking all these critical thoughts, 
questioning thoughts, critical thoughts. Just, just she couldn't help herself. She was just a person who was full of doubt and criticism. She just started thinking of all the ways in which she just didn't like him. And she said he walked right toward her, but just before he got to her, he turned and he went this direction. <laughs> so she was sort of using this as further evidence that her criticism was valid. And so, it, as I said, my first inclination was to say, well, somebody probably called his name or something like that. But then I thought for a moment, I said, think about this. I said to her, you were there and you were just emanating unwelcome. <laughs> you were just emanating, I don't particularly like you. And, you know, even though I'm trying to put on a good face, I'm not happy to see you. He's walking toward that. Why would he, why would he keep walking toward that? Why would he push himself upon someone who didn't even really want to talk to him? And so instead he saw happy magnetism over here, so he just went over toward it. I decided, true or not, it was worth her thinking about that. I remember a similar incident, not related to Swami. Two women in, in our community had a real disagreement, and one of them, both of them actually, um, liked to carry a grudge. And so they, they sort of were having this ongoing um, competition to see who could be more unkind to the other. <laughs> and uh, one of them decided that she was going to be nicer. But, okay, so one woman is in our community kitchen and the other woman comes in. And when the second woman comes in, the first woman is full of seething negative thoughts. But she doesn't articulate them. She just says, hello, like that. The woman coming in says, well, if you're going to be like that, and she turns and walks out. (laughs) So the woman who had only said hello comes to me with just this outrageous accusation. I said, what were you thinking? And she admitted that she was thinking a whole lot of critical, terrible thoughts. But because she'd only said hello, she thought she was innocent. I said, do you think it's not all happening at the same time? I mean, better that you did that than you know, a whole explosion of unkindness, but you're not innocent at all. She just felt it as soon as she came in. But you see how disrupting all this can be? And that's why he says, if you want to keep your vrittis calm, start by giving friendliness to those who are happy, because it's much easier. Just, in other words, where, where you feel uh, simpatico, where you feel the energy. And then, if, if not, if people are unhappy... When I was starting, let me go back to Swamiji for a moment here. You know, Swamiji had one purpose in life, and that purpose was to spread Master's teachings and to spread the vibrations of bliss. And, you know, as he got older and older, he simplified it more and more. The only, the only purpose of life is to be blissful and to share your bliss vibrations with everything, with everyone. It just became uh, simpler and simpler. But earlier in his life, when he was more involved, and he was more interactive and had more of a social personality. I would just watch him in every circumstance. He would try to extend friendship. And if it was reciprocated, he would give more. And if it wasn't reciprocated, he would just pull quietly back into himself. He, he never forced it on anyone, but he would always just see how far he could go and see what a person would receive. I remember vividly being with the, when we used to go to Goa, uh, which we did often, which is in, in India, and it's a, a province that was owned by Portugal, run by Portugal for a long time. It didn't become part of India until 1961. So it's a, little, it's a little bit different there. 
And then when all the trouble happened in Kashmir, way up north, a lot of Kashmiris settled in Goa. And the Kashmiris are very dynamic people, and so they opened shops and started businesses and so on. And the Goans are a little more laid back. It's a little more palm tree, beach sort of attitude. So there's a certain resentment among the Goans because the Kashmiris have come in, and the Kashmiris have gotten richer than the Goans were. But... Uh, so a lot of times if you start a conversation with a native Goan about the Kashmiris, you don't always get happy answers. So we were in the taxi with Swamiji, and we had the same taxi driver for several different trips. And, you know, the, the Goans, Goan man's attitude toward all the Kashmiri shops, because we were often going to the Kashmiri shops because we had friends there. And the Goan taxi driver, you know, was a little crabby about it. Swami all of a sudden starts in with this man about what are the native Goan handicrafts? And he starts talking to him about perhaps you could cultivate more handicrafts. We go to the Kashmiri shops because they have beautiful things, you know. I haven't really seen that many nice things that were made by the Goans. Maybe you all should cultivate. Maybe you could learn from the Kashmiris. (laughs) You know, he just, but not in a scolding way at all. It's just like, how far can I take this relationship? I was so charmed by it. You know, there we are going on a holiday and he, he sees that the, Native people are unhappy, and he tries to fix their economy. Like, why not? I mean, friendliness is more than just a smile. It's really extending a helpful hand if it's possible to do so. I don't think that taxi driver really had the capacity to take it. What was also interesting is that Swami um, particularly picked that same taxi driver for about three rides. And finally, when that conversation happened, then we changed over and started riding with someone else. It was like there was a certain possibility here and he went as far as it could go. And then after that, it would have been giving your friendliness to an unhappy person. You know, it would have been pushing it at that point. So what he says after here is that compassion toward those who are unhappy means to tune in from a higher level, to feel with them their reason for it, but not to be affected by it personally. And this is where why we're encouraged to have compassion for the unhappy person but not necessarily try to impose our friendliness upon them. Because then what happens is we get all engaged. Remember, all of this is about how to keep the vrittis calm. And this is, again, not unrelated to where we started today. One has to be really realistic, not merely in in a, uh, a theoretical sense what one is really able to, what, what one may feel oneself potentially capable of doing, but actually what we really can do. I mean, at the particular age that I am in my life, I've realized I have to be more efficient about how I use my time. You know, the years are shorter at a certain point. There's fewer days in them, and there's fewer hours in every day. Something happens, and time becomes very, very much more precious, really, than it is when you're in your 20s and you just imagine that you have all the time in the world to do everything and you can do a little of this and a little of that and it doesn't matter if you get scattered for a year or two but you know when the when you're on the not so far side of uh, 70 I'm pushing toward it I've got a few years to go but I'm pushing toward it it's the next big one in my world you know that that there's not that many years left so you you don't want to scatter your forces but you don't want to scatter your forces also for the reason that Patanjali says, because it ends up agitating your vrittis. If you're working against the tide, 
So th- this is a very strong intuition. Again, I refer to Swami. He had a very intuitive sense about who he should relate to and how much he should give to them. And it, it, wasn't, it wasn't always discernible, but it was clear once you were close to it. He was kind to everyone equally, but some would draw his energy. I remember uh, a young man, we were, we were somewhere in Europe, doesn't really matter, but we were on a, in a marketplace, in a market area in the evening. And a young man came up and asked Swamiji for money. And Swami opened his wallet and he looked at the man and he said, you are a young, strong man. You should be working, not begging. I'm going to give you a little money, less than I could afford to give you, but just a little bit. You need to go out and work. <laughs> just like that, you know. It was like, you know, I'll, I'll relate to you, but I'll relate to you exactly you know, where you need to be related to. I don't know if that was friendliness or exactly, but it was so, it was like he didn't even just pass him by. He said, I have a message for you just right now. Yeah, he did wake him up. Whoa. Just interestingly, it's very interesting how you feel these things. I was with about three people from Ananda, and we were walking in Los Angeles, and there was a family by the, on the sidewalk. And, you know, people are, you never really quite know, and we all walked just by, and we got about a quarter of a block away, and there was just this collective thought. <laughs> we all turned back, and we just sort of emptied our, our wallets into the hands of this family. And they just were overjoyed, and they got right up from the sidewalk, and they went off to do. They were, they were actually stuck. Something had happened to them, and they'd gotten stuck. But, you know, you feel it. And if you're centered in yourself, and not just randomly sort of dissipating your energy, you'll feel where you're really called to give, whether it's compassion, which is looking at them from above. There's, you know, there's so many homeless people, and it doesn't always help you to give your energy to them. And Swamiji writes about this, because people have energy in their eyes, and if you're too close with them, when their magnetism is stronger than you, that it's, then it's going to be disturbing to your inner energy. But compassion... It's also a really, um, the, way he, the way he defines it, it's a really beautiful word. He says, to tune in from a higher level, and which is to say not from, not from where they are, or not from, if you're, if you're afraid of people's unhappiness, um, this is something that I've talked about in the context of our pilgrimage trips to India. That some people, felt were, I, I would find when we would go there, were afraid of what they were seeing. They, they didn't know how to integrate um, the more um, unsettled side of life. You know, we have, this, we have these naive ideas. We just want everything to be good. And that's a, stage, that's a stage called the revolt. That's part of the little bird's rebellion against the way things are. And I, I found from leading those trips to India and having to take a lot of people through their introduction to a place where there's a lot more poverty and a lot more social chaos on the street than you see mostly in America, than you mostly see in America, um, that people's ability to relate calmly <clears throat> was exactly equal to their ability to relate calmly to the difficult times they'd had in their own life. That if one has come to understand the place of struggle and suffering in 
personal growth. And the only way you can really understand it is if you've had those experiences yourself, gone through them, come out the other side, and realize that God knows what he's doing here. It's, It's a kind of a cosmic understanding that God knows what he's doing here. It doesn't really have to be comfortable and nice to be okay. That Swamiji put it really well once. He said, sometimes the shortest road to freedom and sometimes the only road to freedom is through pain and suffering. And when, when you're with someone who has colossal misunderstandings about whatever, about the consequences of their own actions, about the necessity for generosity, about the necessity for courage or for hard work. I mean, you can make a long list. Or people who are just completely unconscious of their own, their own reality, of the way they act. I, when we first moved into the apartments where we now live, the first apartment David and I had was in building number two. We had a one-bedroom apartment there, which we absolutely loved. We worked really hard to try to think how we could live there forever, but we couldn't even have a staff meeting in the living room. It was just impossible, but it was the perfect size, and we loved it personally. So we're living there, and the back of those apartments is right on the the driveway, the back driveway. And when we first moved in, uh, most of the tenants were the people who were in the property when we took um, possession of it, and we hadn't yet made the evolution. And it was not was a very transitory place, and most of the people who lived there were not great successes in life. Let's just put it like that. And early one Saturday morning, maybe the first Saturday morning we were there at 6 o'clock, somebody parked a car right outside our bedroom window, lifted up the hood, turned on the radio full blast, and started doing his car repair right there. I mean, it was 6 in the morning on Saturday morning, and he had his radial feet from the bedrooms right there. And it wasn't even so much that I didn't enjoy the radio station he was listening to. is that I found it astonishing that he could be so unconscious of the impact of his own actions. And, you know, just looking at him out the window, I could see that he was a man who would also rail against fate if it mistreated him. And the relationship between his own actions and the impact and the karma he was setting up, it appeared to me, was a complete blank to him. Now, how is such a person ever going to evolve? He's going to evolve because the consequences are going to come back to him. I mean, it was a relatively small thing to wake up the whole apartment complex at 6 in the morning just because he wanted to listen to the radio, but it showed such an utter disregard for other people's realities that I'm sure every part of his life was like that. You know, a disregard for other people's realities, then people disregard his realities, and he's outraged, so he does it again to them. How would he ever learn except by that cycle? The same must be true when you see an impoverished person begging on the street, when you see a deformed person, when you see someone born with, you know, very difficult karma that they have to face and overcome. Why would we not want that to happen? The only reason we want it to happen is because we hope it'll happen for us, don't we? We hope that we can plant all these bad seeds and never reap the harvest. Just go over here and get somebody else's karma. You know, we all want somebody else's karma. 
I, there's this nuance of everyone wants to have the disease go away, but no one really wants to become healed, you know, to actually do that, which makes them better. So we have compassion for people, but we have to have it from above, from the understanding that that's fine, you can come through this. When you have compassion from above, you also have confidence that they are going to rise. If, you have com- if you're just looking at them from below, you're as frightened as they are. But when the compassion is from above, it's fine. There was something really powerful that I read about the life of St. Anthony. St. Anthony of the desert, when he was out in the desert for decades, meditating and praying and you know, becoming enlightened in the spirit. And then there was a great deal of chaos in the Christian world, and it, it reached the point where the Christians, there was a period of time when the Christians were being um, martyred. And they were actually being, it was the time when they were being thrown to the lions and things like that. And Anthony came in from the desert, came in from his solitude, and moved among those Christians. And he was so powerful and of such a different order that he actually could go in and out where the Christians were being held. And no one ever arrested him. Can you imagine what kind of power he must have had? But here's something that was so touching. He didn't rescue those Christians. He didn't rescue them from martyrdom. He just gave them courage to face what they had to face. He comforted their fears. He inspired them to sing. He gave them the power of prayer so that they could then just walk off and meet their destiny. Because he was seeing it from above. He was seeing that this was a necessary reality that they had to face, and he just helped them face it. You see, that's, that's real. That's real love. I, I remember a woman friend, she had children whom she raised about as badly as you can raise children. <laughs> I mean, she was like a genius at raising them badly, but she never liked to hear them cry. So they just were absolutely spoiled rotten, and they, you know, they didn't have any bones in their spine. It was just heartbreaking, really. Because whenever they didn't want to do something, she was always there telling them they didn't have to do it. Just as simple as that. I remember with Swami, once he used reverse psychology on me, I was having a very difficult project, and he said, well, this doesn't look like it's working, why don't you just quit? He, he knew me so well. Because, you know, on one side, I was just whimpering away at my helplessness, but when he actually said, okay, dear, you don't have to do it. Absolutely not, sir, I will. Remember, but Master talked about the disciple he had who, was, who was, had very little willpower. And Master said in front of others, this is my baby. I call him that because I'm babying him. And Swami described the man as just being very weak-willed. And then Master turned to this disciple and said, you don't mind if I call you my little baby, do you? No, sir. (laughs) So he said he didn't even have enough spine to be embarrassed. He just took it. But mostly, if they know that we can do it, that's how we have to look at it. But you see, then we have to have the calmness in our vrittis, not to become agitated by the sadness of others. You can help people so much. That story of St. Anthony is so much. Just imagine... um, just imagine what a benefit he was to them. You know, here he is, he's faced so much. He just vibrates with that power of nothing in this world matters except our love for God. You know, and you're about to go be eaten by the lions rather than give up your fate. 
He just send you off to be eaten by the lions, but send you off with a kind of power. Remember the story of Master where the a man came and wanted, the group came and they wanted Master to, to lead a uh, violent revolution against the English in India. And Master refused to join them, but let them go ahead, even encouraged them. And then later they were captured and executed. And Swamiji said, why didn't you save them from that? Oh, it was their karma, Master said. It was, it was a very important lesson they had to learn. It wouldn't have served them to have taken that away from them. Um, just a second, there's another thought I'm trying to find here. Well, I can't find it. It's just right on the edge, but it's gone away now. So, any questions or thoughts about that? That's an extremely important point. Because you see, what he's telling us now is, when you see happy people, extend yourself in friendliness to them. When you see unhappy people, ex- extend your heart and compassion to them, but you see you're held back a little bit because this is how to keep from agitating your vrittis. Go ahead. I was just thinking of um, when you're talking about compassion from above rather than you know below it, um, I was also thinking of looking at things with a longer viewpoint. You know, because you're saying Swami was more easily able to be compassionate towards people from that higher consciousness. It's sort of also, to use a different analogy, closer to the center of the wheel, where you can see more outward and see that that's just a step in their, um, you know, progression of incarnations, that this, this abject poverty or this wickedness or whatever it is that, you know, you were talking about the people that had a lot of trouble with seeing that and um, just remembering, you know, the... The soul's long journey. Right, the soul's basically. long journey and the picture of the wheel and being, if you're, too, if you're clinging to the rim, you can't see the perspective. If you're closer to the center, you can see much more of it. So you know that, yeah, this person's going to go through this unhappiness and then it will resolve. It'll go into the astral world and it will resolve. I had an a interesting thought about that story that uh, Swamiji has told so often about the disciple of Shankaracharya who was very, very, Adi Shankaracharya who was very, frightened and her guru uh, Shankaracharya urged something on her and she was anxious but sir what if I die and he turned to her and he said die then and she fell over dead as Swami said without the compensating relief of being resurrected by her guru she just fell over dead and was dead and but Swamiji when he was telling it uh, in this this other context that I was listening to he mentioned the fact that he was also on the other side to help her. I mean, think about that. Because she was still his guru, and when someone dies, the master's not stopped. And oddly, and I could all just be making this up, but I had this whole picture in my mind. Remember Swamiji tells the story also of when they were digging the swimming pool and how hard it was to dig the swimming pool, and he and Norman had those big piles of sand, and then they had to push the sand flat with a two-by-four, and it was so hot and so hard, and Master kept pushing them and pushing them until finally Swami felt this rising sense of amusement over the whole thing, and he stood back and he laughed. And Master said, oh, I was just playing with you. And Swami described how Master would push them, you know, past the point of their comfort to the point where they would feel resentful, just to see, as he put it, which way they would break to see if they could just feel Master's blessing underneath it and just then flow with it instead of pushing back with anger or ego. Well, I had this picture of this woman 
meeting Shankaracharya on the other side. And let's say she broke in the right way. (laughs) And they both had a good laugh over the whole thing. Wow, I really went a long distance, didn't I? And I left you no choice, did I? I mean, I'm making it all up. Swami said nothing about it. But the fact is, he went with her. You know, she died apparently in this world, but he went with her. He was on the other side with her. She had another chance immediately. And, and we have to realize that we always have another chance. Master never abandons us. And uh, the, the question of forgiveness, as Master uh, Swami tells the story of Master really scolding some disciple, and the disciple said, you will forgive me, won't you, sir? And the way Swami described it, Master was startled, even at the question. But of course, you know, and just like all the um, scolding just went, went away. Well, this doesn't have anything to do with whether I love you or whether I'm eternally committed to you. You've just behaved badly and you have to behave correctly. And that's what Adi Shankaracharya did. Well, you're behaving so badly, just die. You know, but it had nothing to do with their friendship, their commitment. And, and it behooves us to behave that way. That's exactly what is being urged upon us. Compassion from above. Ah, yes, we're all in this together. We're all ro- rolling forward. Okay, let's take a break. Then we'll come back and finish this uh, sutra. I've got the word sutra and stupa really mixed up in my head. I'm going to have to get them apart. Okay. That was 133 is where we are. Com- compassion. Um, when I see somebody that's that's um, homeless or somebody begging for money or a little stray kitten, um, I feel I feel sad, and um, and I know I, I can't solve the world's problems, um, and I I'm beginning to believe that that this is the karma they have to go through. I can tell myself that, but it seems like in a way when I say that I I go to just being cold and numb, and I'm not really feeling compassion. I'm not, I'm not letting the pain come into me and then being able to live with it because I'm in my center, and so I'm not truly compassionate. All you're describing, Marilyn, is a process. I mean, what, what, what's being described on the path of self-realization is not simple. It's not elementary. It's not accessible just at the first time you hear it, it is a lifelong practice. This is exactly the, pra- the question that Tom asked me. So pay attention, observe, revisit, make a continuous effort, but don't even imagine for a moment that you can just by, by articulating it, achieve it. And you know, there's just so many levels of our own uh, vrittis and our own samskars that we have to go through I, the, the word I would try to achieve above all is calmness. Calmness. I would, I would worry less about happy, sad. I would just try to be as calm as I can be in the midst of whatever experience happens because you don't want to be dictating how you're supposed to feel. People get become very insincere in their responses or superficial in their responses because they think that they're supposed to feel a certain way. But what we need to know is we have to know what our reality is, who we really are. We have to fearlessly be ourselves, and then we have to develop the capacity to then choose the state of consciousness we have. So while you're sorting all of that out, 
the most important thing is just to remain calm in the midst of it. You can be sad and calm at the same time, happy and calm at the same time. Just, hmm, isn't this interesting? Look what's happening. And then try to, as much as possible, understand it, reflect on it. Don't shy away from it. And then just, you have to work with it. It's, it's more subtle than that. It's not so straightforward. Oh, I feel sad, I should feel happy. You know, I feel worried, I shouldn't feel worried. You, you, who, what's happening first? Then where is my level of consciousness? Then how can I shift it if I feel that I should shift it? So a step at a time, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yeah. And if I feel like I need to help, then I should just go ahead and help if I can and uh, you try should, and stay calm. Yeah, you should watch where your consciousness is coming from. Mm-hmm. The goal of the spiritual path is freedom from all compelling external realities, external to our divine self. So even if we're behaving in a way that's generous, but that generosity is compelled because we're agitated unless we do something, then the first thing we have to become is calm. You know, somebody somewhere has to do something. I mean, that's the whole basis of social action. People are telling you somebody somewhere has to do something. Not necessarily. You have to feel whether or not the situation just should be allowed to play itself out or whether I really have a duty to participate. You can't tell that unless you're calm. You can't tell that unless you have a, a very grounded, honest perception of your own feelings and where they're coming from. You know, I, I mentioned it earlier when I was a younger person. I was, I, I rarely expressed dis, I, I didn't, I never argued. I rarely argued. I didn't fight with people. I didn't express strong dissonant opinions. But I wasn't really harmonious. I was just afraid. So it wasn't about being nice. It was about being free. So I wasn't, I had to, I had to, I had to find out what I really felt about things and then learn how to choose a different feeling. But I couldn't just choose a feeling without knowing where, who I was first, because then you were starting from ignorance and then pasting um, pretense on top of it, and you've just got an edifice with no foundation. People who come on the spiritual path without self-knowledge, and they don't ever want to have it because what they feel is buried in them is too unpleasant or frightening for them, so they take lack of self-knowledge and they paste upon it an external concept of who they're supposed to be. And they'll, they'll just try to go along like this. But almost always, sooner or later, you know, the, the foundation just gets washed away. A lot of sincere people do that. And if they're sincere, what happens is that sooner or later they fall to pieces. And when they fall to pieces, it looks like a bad thing. But from my perspective, when I have known what was really going on, great. They're falling to pieces. Fabulous. The whole false edifice is going to come to ground now, and all the good karma of the sincere effort they've made will now come into place, and we can build it up again from an honest basis. Self-honesty is everything. Otherwise, when you come close to the guru, you have to run away. Is that, I mean, it's, it's a, it was a complicated answer, but it's a complicated question. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Sure. Anything else? 
All right, so we have compassion. Then we have this wonderful phrase, which I've never really thought of it this way. Delight in the virtuous means delight in virtue, because first one is experienced in himself, and then also the delight one feels in the presence of someone who is more virtuous than oneself is an aspiration toward perfection, a longing of the heart. I never really thought of, for example, our delight in Swami's company as just the delight in someone who's more virtuous than us. And, and not everybody likes people who are more virtuous than them. You know, sometimes they don't like them at all. They don't, they don't want to be around spiritual people. They don't want to be around people who are calmer and more generous. They find them dull or they think that they're frauds. You know, the uh, woman that I was describing whose, whose energy caused Swami to make a right-angle turn, you know, she, was, she, she didn't trust his virtue. She didn't really believe in his virtue. She didn't delight in it. She distrusted it and criticized it. Haven't we often met people who are like that, who they just, they don't like people who are too good. And then there's others who are just, we're so magnetized when we meet somebody who's really dear and, and really pure in their consciousness and pure in their expression and happy. And it's a very good sign to delight in the company of the virtuous. This is the good karma of being drawn to such people and, and having the good sense to really be there. Delight in the virtuous. And that's why we like our spiritual community and why some people would think it's just like, what do you do there? You don't drink, you don't party, you don't carouse, you don't stab each other in the back. You know, like, what do you do? Well, we chant, we meditate, we talk about spiritual things. Then every so often we clean the temple. <laughs> wow, what an interesting life. You know, I mean, we, we buy farms and we, I mean, we, we do a lot of interesting things in truth. But there is this uh, goodness about it. And, and we need to cultivate that in ourselves, in fact. Swamiji's music is always a very interesting fact. I... Uh, because we've been working with the movie Finding Happiness and we've been trying to communicate it and share it with people who are not necessarily on our wavelength, the music is a, it's very interesting how people respond to the music. In fact, we've altered the movie several times to try to get the, especially the scenes where the choir is singing, to make them um, easier for people to relate to. We had more scenes of just the, the choir singing and just the faces of the people singing. And we left a lot of that music in, but we, instead of having it, the visual be the choir itself, we added lots of scenes of the community. For those of you who saw the movie in July, you saw that if you've only seen it in April, you haven't seen the changes. But it was because people just had a hard time. In fact, our, um, some of our professionals in Los Angeles, when we did the focus group showing of the movie, and there was a certain amount of when we asked people afterwards to tell us what they liked and didn't like, people had a little trouble with the church choir, especially when you're dealing with a very worldly Los Angeles crew and the church choir is just not a concept they like. Later, one of our professionals said, do you all really do that? I said, you mean wear rainbow colors and stand up and sing all the time? <laughs> like we do. You know, I said, we don't always wear the sparkly gold shoes, but, you know, <laughs> which the choir members were actually wearing. But uh, sure, we stand up and do that all the time. And the music has a certain 
innocent simplicity to it. We even have, if you watch the movie, we have Juliet, the character. We even have a voiceover where she makes some comment about the, how the, the music does seem kind of innocent and simple, but you know, after a while you really tune into it. I mean, she's articulating the thoughts of the audience by saying that because it's hard for people just to delight in that kind of simplicity and goodness. You know, it's just, it's, it's, we're so pseudo-sophisticated, especially in America, you know. But it's true all over the world, but especially in America, where, where, you know, sort of the harsher and uglier things are, the more sophisticated they are. And so when we come on like little children in our rainbow colors and our gold shoes, you know, manana friends, the world will still be there. <laughs> you know, it's just like... <laughs> It's hard for people to take us seriously. Are they, you know, <laughs> are all their marbles still in their head? But yes, of course they absolutely are. But you do reach a point where you just delight in that, in simple virtue. And we need to cultivate that in ourselves. You know, we need to fight against that pseudo-sophistication that thinks that somehow it has to be more jaded for it really to be good. And so here's Patanjali, how do we relate? We're friendly to the happy. We're compassionate to those who are unhappy. We're, we delight in the virtuous. And then the last, and it's very important, we disregard the wicked. And then this is where Swamiji starts talking about the fact that whatever your vibration of consciousness, it exerts magnetism. And it's very naive of us to imagine, oh, I can handle that. Almost always, not always, but almost always, that I can handle that is just another way of saying, I kind of still enjoy that energy. So I don't have to stay away from that. You know, like, why be so fanatical about it? You know, my old drinking buddies, they're nice guys. We all were friends for a long time. I can handle it. But, but it's, it's really there. It's a living force. And it exerts a power over us. Master um, said something about um, alcohol, drinking alcohol. He, he said strongly, he said, don't ever take a single sip of alcohol. He said, because you never know what samskars you might reawaken. He said, you should never, you should never touch it. He, you know, some parents think, well, I'll introduce my children to it. You know, I'll help them a little bit. And Master was emphatic about that. Of course, I think he was so emphatic because he knew what he was fighting against. There's an article in Clarity Magazine by a devotee up at Ananda Village, Brinde. She wrote it herself. She talks about years and years of struggling against alcohol addiction. She said... She was, her, her grandmother gave her a sip of wine or something when she was maybe 11. She said instantly she wanted more. She said just a sip. She wanted it like that. I mean, I, when I read that, I thought, wow, that's just exactly what Master said. But think about it. Somebody dies on the street of alcoholism and he dies wanting alcohol and he's born again. I mean, where do, the desires don't go away. Merely because you crashed and burned in this lifetime doesn't mean you have learned your lesson. And, I mean, that's just one small thing. Um, it, it, and if you have a tendency to, to like gossip, if you have a tendency to be worldly, if you have a tendency to delight in the suffering of others, if you have a tendency to get agitated over various things and you just hang out with people who are like that, don't think for a minute that you're, as they say, you can cut onions and have your hands not s- smell like onions. We have to be very protective of our... Um, of our own vibrations. And Master talks about spiritual bodyguards. And it, was a, it was a rule in Mount Washington 
that uh, you never went you never went out by yourself you always went out with someone it was for two reasons one was it kept you from kept you more on the straight and narrow you would be less inclined to sort of go off and do something because you thought no one was looking but also it just keeps your magnetism stronger it was very interesting for me because i traveled with shivani this time when i went to india and usually i travel alone and i must admit i really like to travel alone it's i i like being just completely anonymous just nowhere by myself there's a very nice feeling about that but it was also really nice having there be two of us of course i often travel with david and it's always there but recently i've traveled in these long trips by myself but when there were two of us you know the energy was much more than twice as strong it's the only way i can put it it was like w- w- there was never any any veering from that energy and uh it's a very real thing swamiji would always take people with him I mean once in a while he would go somewhere by himself but almost always he would take people with him both as an opportunity to help people but also as an example you know if you if you keep your group together but then when he talks about just simply disregarding the wicked he said part of what the satanic force does is it uses your it makes you feel you have to relate to it that was the phrase Swami used he talked about when he was driving once when he was in the period of time when he was earning money for ananda and he was working so hard and he was so busy he said he was i think he was on one of the bridges he was driving somewhere in the bay area and he felt cold cold germs enter him and he just didn't have time for the cold and he said there was just this this split second of feeling like oh i'm getting sick you know i have to comfort myself i'm getting sick but then all of a sudden he thought i don't even have to relate to this and in a very loud voice he ordered the germs get out get out like that and he felt them run away and he he was very conscious of the fact that they were trying to persuade him that he had to relate to them and to relate to them was to welcome them in some way and so but we just disregard it you know and it, it's a very interesting word because you just disregard it somebody says something to you and you just disregard it somebody criticizes you and they're not accurate you just disregard it you don't contemplate and decide you just let it go so we find ourselves in the presence of wickedness we don't have to think about it at all we just go on with our thoughts on virtue and if necessary to keep a spiritual bodyguard around to keep that up and and you know we only tackle it when we know that we can be compassionate from above i in the um cycle of the lawsuits that we were engaged in when ananda was being really persecuted and this really evil man there's no other word for it. he was a really evil man and he was the attorney on the other side swami actually described him as quote the closest thing to the personification of evil that we are likely to encounter in this lifetime wow and the man was and he swami had lots and lots of interactions with him and mostly swami just essentially disregarded him he had to interact because he was a lawyer asking questions but he just disregarded the man and then at one point he just took him on just like this and you know it's right in the deposition he 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 just looked him right in the eye and he said i don't know what you're like in your personal life but in your professional life he said you are a sadist you became a lawyer because you are a sadist because it gives you a position of power from which you can hurt people 
And he said, you, you find enjoyment in hurting people, and if that is not the definition of evil, I don't know what is. Wow. You know, it was just like it just came out of nowhere. But just all of a sudden, you know, we were just like this. Even the man, he was a little bit affected, but he shook it off as quick as he could. But my, I thought to myself, you know, God brought these two men together for a real reason, and somewhere that's going to go into him. But it was just like... But, and then he went back to just not, just disregarding him. He was evil, he was there, but Swami wasn't going to relate to it. Really quite something. My, my way of responding was I just, I never talked to them. I just never, I mean, I just pretended that they didn't exist. It's the only, that's actually, in truth, mostly the way I related to the SRF monastics most of the time, too. It's like I felt hypocritical to be courteous, to be, to be nice. I felt it unnecessary to be rude, didn't seem right to be rude, so I just disregarded them. <laughs> I mean, I realize now that's exactly the word. I just, they just, I pretended that they, didn't, they weren't there. I just, I couldn't find any other way that seemed appropriate to me. So I just disregarded them, talked to them as little as possible, and just, just I mean, you know, it's just like this, you know, just like they're there, but I look here. And I never talked to the lawyers if I could help it. Just, but it's a wonderful word. Because if you don't have the power, like Swami had, to face it, and occasionally, you know, people had to, the Dura took somebody on once, you know, it was just he felt it was time and he just did it. But the rest, you know, just don't. Be very, very conscious and careful. So there you have it. Four principles for relating to the whole world. Practice it this week. Watch yourself. Just see what happens. It'll be fun to see how it applies. Um, what about relatives that you have to deal with. Uh, this may be going on too long now, but um, I... Th- I have what, a- if, what if the wicked are your own family? Huh? Well, I think I'm improving a little bit. I don't, um, I don't lose my tempers easily, and I'm feeling a little more compassionate. And then I try not to talk on the phone too long. Well, you're answering the question yourself, yes, which is that sound pretty you good? constantly fight the battle. Master said that, um, you know, our family is given to us sometimes so that we can learn our... Well, his actual words were, sometimes love draws families together and sometimes antipathy does so that you can fight it out in close quarters. That's gruesome, isn't it? But it's the truth. And if circumstances demand that you continually interact, as uh, you just have to say each time, well, I'm going to go into battle today and I wonder whether the Kauravas or the Pandavas are going to win. And after the battle is over, you just have to ask yourself, hmm, who won that? And then you have to be realistic. I mean, merely because people have a biological relationship with you does not mean you have to, you have to maintain connection with them. But if you do, then you just consider it a God-given appropriate challenge. Or you decide that I really don't have to relate to this. We may think that we have to, but we don't. So it's it's a entirely it's an entirely personal matter. It, it, there's no rules. You have to just make up your mind as to what's appropriate. People cut off relationships with their 
biological families. When I, when I asked Swami a question related to this at one point about relating to family, he said basically, have they given you any reason to cut them out of your life? Have they asked you to give up the spiritual path? Have they been, you know, something like that? I said, none at all. He said, well, then it, it, you must be kind to them. There's no reason not to be. At, at one point years ago in my relationship with my parents, first my mother and then my father alternately at different times, my mother actually started crossing over to being very critical. And she, she wrote me one letter that was very inappropriate about my spiritual life. And I wrote back very simply, don't make me choose. You know, don't do this. Because if you do... I won't be relating to anymore, and that would really be a shame. And then later my father sort of went there, and I said the same thing. Don't go there. It will have no effect on me, but it will make our relationship impossible. I really, I just, I really suggest you don't go there. And both of them had enough sense simply not to, because they knew I meant it. There was no, there was no playing around with this. And uh, so they never did. Mostly they were very supportive. They were alternately supportive, not supportive. It was, it basically, it was, it was their issue, not mine. <laughs> so, and sometimes you just have to put up with people. They're just, they're not strong, and they're not happy. And there you are, and they belong to you. <laughs> and you've got them for a good reason. Okay, I think that will be our end point for tonight. Thank you all very much. So we made it through 133, and so next week we will go to 134, maybe even to 135.